Thank you, Connie. First Samuel chapter 25 this morning. First Samuel chapter 25. Now, those of you who attend here all the time know that I usually read a substantial amount of scripture before I preach. Uh, I don't apologize for that, but this morning I feel like I need to warn you we're going to read a really lot of scripture today because it's, it's a story and I can't cut it off in the middle. And so, bear with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 25. It'll be helpful to you if you're looking on as we read. That always makes it a little bit easier, especially when it's a long passage. So if you don't have the New King James Version and you want to follow along with what we're reading, uh, the one in the seat in front of you is that version. So let's, uh, let's begin reading in verse number 1, 1 Samuel 25. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was at the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young man, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about four hundred men went with David, and two hundred stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day. All the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. 
Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened, after about ten days, that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant, to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took a Hinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galilee. Well, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the word of God, and thankful, Lord, for this story this morning. So much, Lord, that we can learn from this. I pray today that you would, first of all, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Help me today, Father, to Preach clearly and accurately and practically the word of God. And I pray, Father, that I would say only those things you once said, not say anything I ought not. But I pray, Father, we'd all learn 
pray we'd all, guided by the Spirit today, hear your message for us. Lord, there are some lessons here, and I pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't think this story requires a whole lot of explanation. Just reading the whole thing, I think the details were pretty clear, and I don't think we need to describe further what took place there. And I think actually the lessons that we can learn from this particular passage of Scripture are more in the characters than in the actual events. And so what I thought I'd do this morning is just spend some time talking about the three principal characters, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pull some lessons out of that. But let's, let's think first of all about the three characters. And they're worth it, right? One of them was about to make a tragic mistake. One of them was used by God to head off that mistake. One of them made the greatest mistake imagined. One of them was a fool. One of them was a princess. And one was soon to be a king. Let's notice all three of them. First of all, let's talk about David. And of course, we know David is soon to be the king. It's interesting, isn't it, the way that this chapter opens. It's almost jarring. Then Samuel died. Now, I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say explicitly whether or not that had some effect on David in this chapter. But it seems likely that it would have. And there has to be some reason, really, that the Holy Spirit saw fit to include that interesting detail. Then Samuel died, the Israelites buried him, and David went down to the wilderness. There's some reason that's in there. I think it must have affected him. Samuel had been the spiritual leader of Israel over the people for many years. As a matter of fact, all of David's life, there had been Samuel, the spiritual leader of all. Samuel was the one who had anointed him as king when he was a young man. And there had been times since then when there had been some personal interaction between Samuel and David. And so I think there must have been a personal bond there. And when Samuel died, it must have had some effect on David. My guess, he was saddened by the loss. My guess, he was also doubly saddened because of the fact that he was on the run. He probably could not even attend the funeral for this important person. And so I think we come upon David in this chapter at a time when he's kind of in a bad state. I think David is actually at the end of his rope here. I think he is to the point where he's ready to snap. I do think he was stricken by grief. I do think he was frustrated by Saul's enmity. In the previous chapter, we had seen the event where he had had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he chose not to do so. I think he was frustrated by the enmity of Saul. I think he was weary of running. And if I understand his request to Nabal properly, he might have even been hungry because he apparently needed supplies and food and things like that. And so here he is. He's hungry. He's tired. He's frustrated. He's grief-stricken. And he comes to... Nabal, who he's been protecting in the wilderness, and asks for remuneration. And he is rebuffed. David wasn't asking for something for nothing. He had provided a service. His army of 600 men had been taking care of Nabal's people, Nabal's goods, protecting them, so much so that uh, they hadn't lost a single thing. So he wasn't asking for something for nothing. He was asking for remuneration for a service rendered. And Nabal rebuffed him. And interestingly, in a fit that we could only describe as rage, David responded in a way that we would not have expected him to respond. He gave in to his temper. He mustered his army. He sent them on a mission of destruction. He said, don't leave a single male. He said, kill them all. 
Now, that just doesn't sound like David to me. Does that sound like David to you? It's not the David that we have seen. Verse number 21 reveals just how out of character David is behaving here. He had been unwilling to kill Saul. Do you remember that? He had been unwilling to kill Saul who had rewarded him evil for good. That exact phrase was used. We talked about that the last time we were in uh, chapter 24, I think. But here we see just the opposite. David is enraged with Nabal. Why? Because he rewarded him evil for good. The very thing that he had not been willing to do before. When David was acting in character, he would say things like, he said in 1 Samuel 17, or like we sang this morning, the battle is the Lord's. I'll trust God with this. But here we see David out of character saying things like, may God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Out of character. One man said, transported by passion, blinded by revenge, he was on the eve of perpetrating a great injury. The king. Well, David's not the only character in this story, though. There's, there's others. So let's, let's think about another one. Let's think about Nabal. Nabal. Nabal was a rich man whose holdings in land and livestock were substantial. If you compare the description here of his riches and the amount of livestock he had and things like that, if you compare that to Job in Job chapter 1, and Job is believed to have been the richest man around at the time, you'll recognize that Nabal here was among the richest and most influential men of his day. He lived in a place called Maon, and his business was in Carmel, according to verse number 2. Now, those of us who visited Israel, we stood on the top of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is not the same place as this Carmel. This Carmel is in the south of the country. Uh, you need to think, those of you who have been there, you need to think En Gedi. You need to think Hebron. You need to think down in that area. The wilderness, mountainous area of the south is where this Carmel was, and Maon was right near it. He was rich. He was influential. And yet, his greatest characteristic, he was an idiot. An absolute fool. His name means fool. That's what his wife said. In verse number, his wife said, his name is fool, and fool he is. Verse number 25. But you know, that's not all that we learn about him here. There's some things the Holy Spirit chose to tell us about this man. Uh, there's, just, there's just not much flattering about him. Verse number 3 says he was harsh. Verse number 3 says he was evil in his doings. So he treated people bad. And he was evil in all that he did. Verse number three also says, though, uh, that he was of the house of Caleb. Now, we, we see those first three, or those first two things in his dealings with David's men, right? He certainly treated them harshly. He certainly treated them uh, evilly, unkindly, wrongly. But there's that interesting thing at the end of verse number three. He was of the house of Caleb. Why did the Holy Spirit put that in there? What's that mean? You remember who Caleb was. Caleb was one of the great men in the history of Israel. Caleb was one who, along with Joshua, they were the only two who had brought back a favorable report when they went in to search out the land. Twelve men were sent in, twelve came out, only two had a favorable report. Only two trusted God that he would give them the land as he had promised. The other ten cowards all convinced the people differently. And it led to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. You remember that story? And you remember that only Caleb and only Joshua, those two, were left 40 years later to go into the promised land. He was one of the great leaders in the history of Israel. But uh, his history doesn't end there. Caleb is also the one who, when he was in his 80s, approached Joshua and said, you know what, 
uh, they said we couldn't take this land. I want that mountain right there. And he went in his 80s and took that mountain. One of the great men in the history of Israel. And so you have to wonder. You have to wonder why his name is here associated with this fool Nabal. And I can think of just a couple of reasons. Brother Phil shared one with me that I had found some other places too, but I can think of a couple of reasons. One reason might be it's a reminder to us that godly ancestors do not guarantee godly progeny. Just because Caleb was a great man does not mean that all of his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were going to be. One person put it like this. He said, Nabal came of a noble stock, but cursed with a narrow heart, a senseless head, and a groveling nature, he fell as far below average humanity as his great ancestors had risen above it. With all his wealth and family connection, he appears to us now as poor a creature as ever lived. And we cannot think of him without reflecting how little true glory or greatness mere wealth or worldly position confers. Hmm. So one reason may be just as a reminder of that. Just because we have godly ancestors doesn't have anything to do with us. It doesn't mean uh, that we're going to be right. It might be a reminder to us as parents to pray for our kids, for our grandkids. For our great-grandkids. But there's another explanation, and I think this was actually better. Some, uh, some have pointed out that the word Caleb, Caleb was a great man, but Caleb had a terrible name. The word Caleb means dog. I, I'm not sure why Caleb was named dog, but that was his name. It means dog. And so some have said that really what this verse is saying to us is not that he was a descendant of Caleb, but he was Caleb-like. He was a dirty, rotten dog, is what it's saying. And I like that particular explanation because I have a relative who likes to use that phrase. Every time somebody upsets him, he'll say, well, that dirty dog. Well, that's what's being described here by Caleb. He was harsh. He was evil. He was a dirty, rotten dog. He was a fool. And then there's one last description that the Holy Spirit gives us of him, and it's in verse number 11. And I think that when we look at verse number 11, we see that this fool thought himself to be a self-made man. He really thought he was something. He thought that all that he had, he had gotten himself. Look at verse number 11 and count the eyes and count the eyes. In verse number 11, I find it interesting. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? Wow, there's so much there to describe his character. Well, so we see David, we see Nabal. Let's, let's talk about somebody besides the fool, though. Let's... Let's move on to the heroine of the story. And she is the heroine of the story, and that's Abigail. Abigail was Nabal's beautiful and intelligent wife. And you say, how do you know she was beautiful? Well, the Bible says she was beautiful. How do you know she was intelligent? The Bible says she was intelligent. Isn't that what it says in verse number 3? The name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding. She was intelligent. And she had beautiful appearance. Now, of course, if you're an honest person, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have a question that's coming to our mind right now, don't we? All of us are asking ourselves, what in the world is she doing with him? Are we not asking that question? That comes to all of us. It came to most of the commentators that I studied. Everybody would say, what? How did this match ever take place? This beautiful and intelligent woman with this man who has nothing good going and, of course, some theorize that it was the age-old issue of marrying for money. That's possible. If that's the case, it would have been most likely her father who arranged that rather than her 
for marriages were arranged in those days. But regardless of how they were, they came to be married, they were married. Beautiful Abigail, intelligent Abigail, was married to this harsh, evil, idiotic Nabal. There's a lot of things the Bible tells us here about this woman. And let me just go down through here very quickly, because we don't have a whole lot of time to do it. But I just want to mention several things that it says here about her. And you'll see that she was quite a lady. The Bible tells me here she was a woman of action. If you look at verse number 18. When she heard of Nabal's stupid behavior and David's vengeful reaction, she quickly took action. Verse number 18 also tells me she was generous. He had come asking for food, for help. The gift that she provided, the gift that she prepared for David, was more than fit for a king. She was generous. Verse number 19 tells me she was calculating. Did you notice what she did here? And some of these little details sometimes we don't notice so much in the Bible, but I don't know if you noticed verse number 19. But what she did is she said, uh, uh, we're going to send this gift on ahead, and then I'll follow after. We saw that someplace else in the Bible. We saw that when Jacob wanted to appease his enraged brother Esau. You remember that? He said, I better send him a gift. So I'll send a little bit here, and then a little bit here, and a little bit here. I want this big, long train of gifts to come to him. I want it to look like a mile-long gift coming to him. And she did the same thing. She sent this monstrous long gift in this big train, and then she followed after. She understood presentation. It makes me think of when my son played for Mount Union, uh, uh, Mount Union's football team. I used to remember watching the football games, and it was always the same scene whenever the Mount Union team would take the field. 200 and some strong, they would all come out single file, and it would take seemingly forever for the team to get on the field. And it was calculated to increase the intimidation factor to the other team. She was calculating like that. Verses 19 and 20 tell me that Abigail was brave. Here's David coming at her with an army of 400 men. He is enraged. He is a warrior. He is coming at her to destroy everything she holds dear. And her first response is to jump on a horse and ride right at him. That's, that's brave. That makes me think of how David responded when he was faced with Goliath and he ran right toward him. Verse number 23 tells me she was respectful. She treated David like he was the king. Nabal had said, who is this David? She knew who David was and she treated him in the right way, respectful. Verses 24 through 31 where she speaks to him, we see that she was brilliant. I tried to come up with a better explanation, a better word, I kind of, some other adjective to describe her words to David, but I couldn't think of any. She's brilliant. Brilliant. Think about her argument, and we don't have time to delve into it much this morning, but think about it. She was tactful. She was respectful. She, she used just the right amount of censure and rebuke. She, she definitely told him where he was going wrong. She definitely rebuked him where he needed to be rebuked. She censured him where he needed it, but it was mixed with just the right amount of godly thinking, forward thinking. She was brilliant. Brilliant. If we had time this morning, we could spend more time thinking about her argument, but I'll, I'll leave you to study that on your own. She said so many great things here. She said in verses 24 and 29 that, David, it would be beneath you to avenge yourself. You need to let the Lord fight your battles. Can you imagine how that must have smacked David upside of the head? David, who had said the battle is the Lord's. And now he finds himself here. I'm getting ready. I'm, I'm this close to fighting my own battles. And she said, David, you ought not to do that. She said in verse number 30, you know, God will perform what he promised regarding you. In his time, you will be king. She said in verse number 
uh, 32, that she reminded David of the sovereignty of God. She said uh, that he had sent her to keep him from taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting God to fight for him. Uh, Verse 26, actually. That argument wasn't lost on him. He saw it. He understood it. Verses 32 and 34. She reminded David, and I love this argument. She said, you know, when you're king, you're not going to want something like this in your past. You're not going to want something you later regret. You're not going to want something that would mar your reputation as a servant of the Lord. Verse 31. She said, David, don't do something now that will forever mar your history. Don't do something now that is out of character, avenging yourself. Don't do something now that you'll regret forever. Brilliant. I I can just imagine this mighty warrior standing there, surrounded by 400 armed killers, speechless, before this woman, as she has said these things to her. Well, three principal characters make up this wonderful story. The king, the fool, and the princess. Let's leave them for a minute, and let's talk about some lessons that we can learn from this, because I think there are a few. I'm only going to share four. You could probably think of a lot, but let me just share four lessons that I think we can learn from this this morning. Number one, I would suggest it's dangerous to act in haste when we are angry or frustrated or grief-stricken. Or even hungry. It's dangerous. We learned that lesson from David. You know, at times like this, when we're not at our best, when circumstances overwhelm us, and we all go through these times, we make mistakes. We mess up. We make stupid decisions. And at such times, it's usually the small things that trip us up, isn't it? Let me read what one person said about this chapter. He said, this chapter, recording David's collision with Nabal and showing us how David lost his temper and became hot and impetuous and impatient in consequence of Nabal's treatment, comes in between the narrative of his two great victories over the spirit of revenge and impatience. I don't know if I mentioned that or not, but that is true. Chapter 24 was the first time that he had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he said, nope, I'm going to let God fight that battle. Chapter 26 was the second time he had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he said, nope, I'm going to let God fight that battle. Right in the middle of it comes this particular situation where he decided to take matters into his own hands. This fellow goes on, he says, it gives us a very emphatic lesson how the servant of God may conquer in a great fight and yet be beaten in a small. The history of all spiritual warfare is full of such cases. In the presence of a great enemy, the utmost vigilance is maintained. Every effort is strained. Every stimulus is applied. In the presence of a small foe, the spirit of confidence, the sense of security is liable to leave every avenue unguarded and to pave the way for defeat. When I am confronted with a great trial, I rally all my resources to bear it. I realize the presence of God. But when it is a little trial, I am apt to meet it unarmed and unguarded and I experience a humiliating fall. Thus it is that men who have in them the spirit of martyrs, and who would brave a dungeon or death itself rather than renounce a testimony or falter in a duty, often suffer defeat under the most ordinary temptations of everyday life. They lose their temper on the most trifling provocations. Almost without a figure, they are crushed before the moth. And that's what happened to David here. Here he is, this great man who has stood toe-to-toe with giants, and he is giving in to a temper tantrum at this time. 
The past two weeks we've been on both a business trip, a couple of business trips, and vacation. Two Lord's Days we were away from you, and both of those Lord's Days we were privileged to attend a different church. Well, I was. She was here one of those weeks. First week, we were in, I was in Philadelphia on a business trip. The trip started on Sunday, which was odd. The business aspect of it started on Sunday. There were activities on Sunday morning, and the people who I traveled with said to me, well, are you going to go to these activities? And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm going to blow them off, and I'm going to go find myself a church. And to my great delight and amazement, my co-workers said, hmm, I think we'll go with you. So we all went walking 10 blocks down to the old section of Philadelphia, and we walked into the Christ Church in Philadelphia that dates all the way back to the founding of our nation. We walked right by Independence Hall to get there, and we walked into that church. Ben Franklin is buried in their graveyard. And we walked in. It was an Episcopal church, so it was definitely a different service than what we have here. It was a very high church. Lots of candles and things. We walked in, the music was playing, and we sat down in a pew. And we didn't really pay attention to where we sat down, we just picked a pew. But then as we looked on the side of the pew, there was a little plaque there, a little golden plaque. And I leaned over and looked at that plaque, and it said, this is the Washington pew. And I read a little bit further, and I realized that I was sitting in the very seat that George Washington had sat. That I was sitting in the very seat that Martha had sat. That John Adams had sat. That Lafayette had sat And I thought, hallelujah, glory. How often do you get an opportunity to do something like that? And then last week, Beth and I were in Arizona, cowboy country, and so we decided we wanted to try a church that would be uh, uh, correct for the event, and so we went to the Cowboy Church of Sedona, Arizona. And uh, that was absolutely a wonderful experience. We had, uh, her, her bank had given us a, a wonderful gift as part of the thing that she went up there for the award ceremony she went for. They had given us cowboy boots. So we were wearing our cowboy boots. We were driving a Mustang convertible. And so we drove our Mustang in our cowboy boots to the cowboy church. And we just had an absolutely wonderful time there. Uh, the music was great. The preaching was great. It was just a, it was just a wonderful service. But I, but I tell you all that to just share something that that cowboy preacher said. At the very end of it, here I am thinking about these things and thinking about this, and here I am sitting in this church hundreds of miles away from home, and it was like he was giving me an illustration for my sermon. He was, of course, talking in cowboy speak, and he was, you know, he's wearing a cowboy hat. But uh, one of the things he said at the very end of his sermon, he said, you know, sometimes when we have all of the wagons circled, and we're ready for all of the marauders to come, that's when the little creeping things can slither through our defenses and get to us. And you know, I think that is exactly what happened to David here. David, who had stood against giants, was tripped up by this little thing. So if there's a lesson for us from David here, it's this. Don't act in haste when you're angry or frustrated or grief-stricken or even hungry. Because it is those times when the devil will get us with the little things. There's another lesson here, and I think it's a lesson we learned from Abigail. I think it's important that we do act in haste if it helps a brother or a sister to avoid sin. Now, there is no question in verse number 14 when we read that she made haste. There's no question that there was part of that which was self-seeking. She was protecting herself and she was protecting her family. I understand that. But when we also read her speech to David, we also recognize that she cared and she was trying to make certain 
that he did not fall into something that he ought not to have fallen into. And so I think the lesson is it's important that we do act in haste for brothers and sisters about to sin. If someone you know or someone you love is about to make a mistake, about to fall into sin, you know, you, you can't move fast enough. You have to help. You have to do something about it. You have to stop them. Don't allow them to fall into that sin without at least attempting to provide some help. If your child were about to fall into a fire, you would risk every fiber of your being to keep that child out of the fire. Oh, and we like Abigail need to learn that same amount of haste to helping our spiritual brothers and sisters if they're about to fall away. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 when he said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that what James said in James chapter 5 when he said, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so it's important to act in haste that helps a brother or sister avoid sin. Third lesson I see here. This one also I think we learned from David. We need to hear God's voice, even when it comes from an unexpected source. David listened to Abigail. He could have swept her aside. His rage could have got the better of him. He could have pushed her away. But he didn't. He listened to her, and he recognized that God was using her. Verse number 32 tells us David knew Abigail was sent from God. Returning to his right mind, he could now see as so often before. God was superintending events. God had put her in his path. And he listened. And he recognized that God has done that. You know what we do? A lot of times someone will come to us and say, you know what, I, I want to talk to you about something. We'll count them our enemy. We'll be upset with them. All they're trying to do is help. They're our brothers, they're our sisters, they're acting in love, they're trying to be obedient to Scripture. And so we need to learn from David, who heard God's voice even when it came from an unexpected source. But finally, one last one. One last Lesson. The greatest fool is the one who dies a fool. And that lesson we learned from Nabal. Now we've discussed all kinds of reasons why Nabal would be called fool. Obviously, one is because his name means fool. And he certainly acted the fool in his treatment of David. But it's verse number 36 where we see him feasting like a king while absolute destruction is roaring toward him. That we see the heights of his foolishness. You know what Nabal is? Nabal is a picture of the lost. Nabal is a picture of the lost because he was oblivious. He was blind. Oblivious of what was really coming upon him. Upon the frailty of his state. Oblivious of the nearness of judgment. Frittering away his days in frivolity and feasting and drunkenness. While judgment was coming toward him. We don't know just what exactly killed Nabal. The Bible gives some picturesque language here. It says his heart became a stone. Some have conjectured it might have been a stroke. Some have conjectured it might have been a heart attack. We don't know. Something like that. But whatever it was, we do know it was the judgment of God. God took him out. And he apparently thought himself oblivious to that. And when Abigail shared with him the judgment that had been thundering her, 
his way. She waited until the next morning when he was stone cold sober. She waited the next morning to tell him, whispered in his ear, look at what you just almost had happen. When that happened, something, he had a heart attack or something. One person suggested that he probably fainted from horror at the perilous situation in which he had unconsciously placed himself. Can you imagine if everybody who is lost could get just a glimpse? Just a glimpse. Infinitesimal glimpse of what is coming their way. How I wish I could somehow do that. How I wish I could somehow share with people who have never trusted Christ what awaits them. What is thundering toward them. The fact is, I think they too might faint in horror. Hopefully they would turn to Christ. You see, the greatest fool is the one who dies a fool. Nabal lived as a fool, but Nabal also died as a fool. And I guess if there's a lesson that we close with this morning, it's this. You need not be such. You can turn to Christ this very moment and deliver yourself from that judgment. You can call upon the name of the Lord this very moment, right where you sit, and die a child of the king rather than die. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this very moment, right where you sit, to deliver yourself from ever, become part of the family of God, and have eternity with Christ. We all saw the images this past week, didn't we? We all saw the pictures and heard the interviews and the endless TV reporting of what took place in Boston. Some in our group were touched by that, even in their own families. Of all the images I saw this past week, the one I think that was the most chilling was the one of the little eight-year-old boy standing on the fence. Right behind him stood the murderer, getting ready to drop the bag right behind him. And as we looked at that, no doubt all of us thought the same thing. We thought, how terrible. And we looked at that, our, our minds went right to that little boy, eight years old. Because for some reason, we always seem to think that an eight-year-old life is more important than the 50-year-old life that's standing right next to him. I don't think that, and God doesn't think that. Because the fact is there was a whole crowd there. And just as it was horribly unexpected that that little boy was destroyed and blown out into eternity, it was horribly unexpected for every single person who was there. Every one of them. And all of them standing there in that picture, watching that race, were oblivious to the fact that in seconds they would be in the presence of God. All of them. You know, for most people, the situation is going to be similar. You're going to be given no warning. One moment you're going to be standing, watching a race, feasting in your house, whatever. The next moment, you're going to be standing before God. And so if you have heard nothing else in this sermon this morning, I hope you hear this. The greatest fool is the one who dies a fool. There are all kinds of lessons from this story, but that is the most important one. Don't go out of here this morning like Nabal. Don't go out of here this morning not knowing for certain that you're on your way to heaven. Don't. Don't die a fool. Turn your life to Christ before it's too late. Well, there may be other lessons, but I'm done. This was the story of a fool, a princess, and a king. And there are lessons from all of them. And so ask yourself today, right before we sing, musicians, you can come. Which lesson applies to you? Is it the lesson of Nabal? Then I implore you this morning, as your pastor, as your friend, don't walk out of here not knowing Christ. There are people in this room who would love to show you how you can know for certain you're on your way to heaven. You can trust Christ today before it's too late. 
But maybe there's some in this room here this morning who need to hear the lesson of Abigail. Maybe there's someone in your life who's about to make a mistake. Someone in your life who's about to turn away. Someone in your life who is this close to doing something that they'll regret forever. Learn the lesson of Abigail and go to them. Talk to them. Help them. And maybe for some this morning it's the lesson of David. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe someone has hurt you as Nabal tried to hurt David. And maybe you've been tempted to take matters in your own hands. Rather than trust God. If that's the case this morning, don't do something you'll regret. If that's the case this morning, come to your senses. If that's the case this morning, remember that the battle is the Lord's. If that's the case this morning, remember, like David had to remember, the words of a, of a wonderful hymn, this is my father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Yeah.